Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate your support, and thank you for tuning in this new episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, where we tackle medical writing. So we need to talk about medical writing. There's a lot in the press about medical writing. Is it good? Is it bad? Oftentimes, I hear that if an article is uh, written by a medical writer, uh, I'm going to dismiss it. It just means that the um, uh, authors had no influence, had no comments. So, you know, is this real? Is it true? How much of stigma this is about medical writing? What are the real facts about medical writing. I want to do this episode about separating the myths from facts when it comes to medical writing. And no one is better than two medical writers to come into this show to explain all issues pertaining to medical writing. So I have Marielle Ferris, who is a medical writer, and uh, she is a pharmacist by training, and she's been doing that for several years. Uh, uh, and really, she's going to give us a little bit into what is medical writing and what does it mean and take us to some examples of the projects that she works on. We also have Tom Lang, who has, um, again, who has done a lot of communication, teaching, local and international, does a lot of critical appraisal to the evidence, has written a couple of books. And he's going to tell us also about medical writing. He's been doing it a little bit longer than Marielle for several decades. And I think he's going to give us a wealth of expertise and opinions about how the profession has evolved over the past uh, couple of decades. I think this is an important topic. Look, this is very critical for us to understand uh, as opposed to just judge. So understanding that topic is going to be critical for us as opposed to simply just judging that any article that is sponsored by uh, and written by a medical writer, it's something that we need to dismiss. It's just not true. Okay, well, before I air the episode that I, air, I, I taped with Marielle and Tom on November 14, 2021, I want to plug the show and ask you to find it on all podcast outlets to rate it and write a brief review please refer a friend or a colleague to the show. And don't forget to check out the show on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You could listen to all of these episodes on my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Without further ado, Marielle Ferris and Tom Lang, medical writing only on Healthcare Unfiltered. Okay, folks, well, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm really excited today to host uh, two amazing guests uh, on the Healthcare Unfiltered uh, podcast, Marielle Farris and Tom Lang, who will introduce themselves in a, in a little bit. But uh, as you heard in my intro, I really wanted to talk about medical writing as a broad category and really separate the myths from facts and, and really get into the nitty gritty details of what medical writing is. How does somebody become a medical writer? How does a day in life of a medical writer look like? Um, who are the stakeholders, internal, external, and, and all of that? Uh, I see a lot of this on social media and I wanna really uh, spend a, a whole hour hopefully talking about this. Okay, well, Marielle and Tom, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking time 
I know we're taping this actually for context for uh, listeners. We're taping this on November 14, 2021. Um, so, um, uh, and it's a Sunday. Uh, so I appreciate you taking time of uh, your Sundays. Uh, I want to start by just quick introduction to listeners as to who you are, uh, a little bit about you to how we how you got where you are today, and how do you define yourself in the medical writer uh, arena. Tom, we'll start with you since you are on the West Coast, so you, you woke up a little bit earlier than me and Marielle, so we give you that. All right. I My first job out of college was as a tech writer. I was trained to be a technical writer editor at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. When I decided that maybe if I had a contribution to make to the world, it was really, I really didn't want it to be a nuclear weapons. And so I had a background in um, athletic training and sports medicine and eventually migrated to uh, medical writing. Uh, time passes. Uh, I worked primarily as a, a technical writer editor uh, up until the 90s. Um, I was a grants officer at a major university for a long time, wrote a lot of grants. And then in um, in 1990, I became manager of medical editing services for the Cleveland Clinic Foundation and was there for many years. Um, I wrote a book called How to Report Statistics in Medicine, which is still a standard reference in the field of evidence-based medicine and medical writing. Then uh, I spent a year in Boston working with Joseph Lau at the uh, New England uh, Evidence-Based Practice Center, which was also the New England Cochrane Center. And when Boston proved to be too expensive a place to live, uh, went back to Cleveland, we had kept our house there, and began um, work as a consultant. And I have done that now for 22, 23 years. In, early on, I was recruited by a colleague to help teach on a program in China. We were doing train the trainers to, there's a lot of good research going on in China, especially in basic sciences. Uh, but they were having trouble getting published in Western journals, uh, not just because of the language differences, but because of, of the, uh, the ethic of Western publication. How do you do that? How do journals um, want articles? How do they accept them and so forth? So in um, over, it was over a five-year period, we trained four groups of, of Chinese editors. And these were physicians, uh, teachers of medical English, um, hospital administrators, but they each went through a six-week course um, that we taught on-site in Beijing. And then they completed a year-long uh, online course uh, taught by my associate. And then they each spent um, three months internship in the United States. So I hosted, I think, five of those groups over the years uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, but that introduction to international training uh, was followed with some other Opportunities. So I've taught for the Japanese Union of Scientists and Engineers uh, every year since 2000 on the program that they have for their uh, primarily regulatory writers. Um, and then in, in due course, wrote another book called How to Write, Publish, and Present in the Health Sciences, which opened up some more options, more, more opportunities. And so I've, I've ended up, uh, about half of my income was from training, much of that international. Uh, worldwide, uh, Africa, Middle East, uh, Asia, North America, Europe. 
And the other half was author's editing, which is what I was trained to do at uh, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. I never advertised. It was all word of mouth. Um, I made a point to be visible in the American Medical Writers Association. And oftentimes people who attended my, my workshops there, I think I taught more than 200 in, over the course of the years. Um, I would get referrals from them. Um, other authors heard about me either through my books or from a colleague. And so that was that. I've, I've made a very good living on it the last uh, you know, 22, 23 years. Um, I'm sort of in semi-retirement now, but uh, I still do a lot of, um, of teaching by Zoom and a lot of um, you know, just consulting with people on how do you get into the field, what skills do you need, and so forth. So that's how I got to be where I am and where I am. Thank you so much, Tom. Amazing uh, journey over the past uh, several decades. Uh, and uh, you have a website, TomLangCommunications.com. Yes. I'm going to make sure listeners know about that so they can check it out. Marielle, how about you? Yes, thank you, Shelly, for having us on this important topic. I am a pharmacist by training. And when I came to this country, I worked for several years in traditional uh, community pharmacy settings. And then I also did some work for, um, uh, in the managed care pharmacy setting, uh, working for Medicare Part D uh, plan administered by Cigna. And uh, also a little bit on the formulary management side. And then through a set of circumstances, I had to relocate uh, to my home country for a couple of years. So I was between jobs and uh, I started reconsidering my options. And the idea of medical writing uh, came about through uh, really random conversations with friends and family. And I became attracted or drawn to the idea uh, kind of intellectually because it, it was uh, uh, interesting to me that you know you get to be reading, exploring research, being exposed to the latest research and technologies in medicine, using your scientific knowledge, working with teams, peers, and colleagues, which offered a little bit more flexibility, more diversity than what I was doing routinely on the job. And I started exploring it on the side, taking small projects, uh, covering meetings, uh, expert meeting and such. And then as of as a few years back, I just took the jump as a full-time medical writer. I'm self-employed in the Washington DC area. Uh, I work mainly in physician education and under physician uh, education and training for different uh, pharma companies or continuing education uh, companies or communication agencies. Um, a little bit, I also do a lot of conference coverage, conference proceedings uh, for different uh, disease associations or the NIH, their workshops, um, round tables, expert meetings, who are then turned into um, uh, white papers and manuscripts for publication. A little bit on scientific articles and a little bit of regulatory writing, but this is a minor minor uh, in my portfolio at the moment. Um, like Tom said, there's a lot of word of mouth that goes on, how you get your clients. I'm involved in the American Medical Writer Association, um, the regional chapter. I have a lot of contacts there and I you know, volunteer, contribute to, to different efforts there. Um, and it's doing pretty well. I think it's a very rewarding, very satisfying um, occupation. 
Uh, I look forward to, you know, learning more skills, diversify my skill sets. Um, and uh, yeah, to, to our conversation today. You have a website as well? I do have a website. So I'm registered as a sole proprietorship business owner, a small business at uh, Science Notes. Dot io. Science Science okay, just dot make sure that, I yeah, just so listeners there are aware of that. And you also do, uh, you do uh, uh, writing only in English, but I do know something about you that you also speak fluent French. Do you do that in French as well? Um, I was asked to, I was asked to, uh, to do it or to actually listen to it, to meetings in French and translate and write it in English. Uh, so I've done it a little bit, but there is, I know there is a demand, say, from Canada or for, from France for people who are dual, uh, dual speakers to attend in one language and write in English and even in Arabic, too. I mean, I've, I've attended Arabic, uh, mixed Arabic, English uh, uh, advisory boards and, and, and had to, to write the, the report in English. So that was interesting. Yeah. So there's That's diverse great. demand. <laughs> So let's start by, for listeners, when they hear medical writing, what exactly do you write? I mean, medical writing, it's such a broad category. And I guess my two questions is to you, Tom, we'll start with you, is medical writing, what, you know, how do you define that? Like, you know, how do you, if you try to create a definition, few lines or so. Mm -hmm. And number two, who are you writing too like who is because you have to tailor your writing to who you're going to read right i mean you know you you tailor it differently so so explain to listeners what is the definition of medical writing is it subspecialized and who's your target audience well first let me begin by telling you what medical writing is not um, it's not about medicine and it's a whole lot more than writing the field itself has three major categories and one minor category. The largest category that employs, uh, em, employs the most writers and the most um, freelance contractors is regulatory writing. Now, a lot of regulatory writers uh, are hired for their content knowledge. Many of them have PhDs in biochemistry or pharmacy or whatever. Uh, they get involved in drug development. At some point, they get tired of cutting off rat heads and they make a, a, a lateral shift into the regulatory area. Uh, another uh, large category uh, where Varielle works is the, uh, it's called MedCom, short for medical communications, but it's, it used to be key, uh, continuing medical education uh, and it is still that except now it's, it's um, educating all healthcare providers in a variety of, of topics. It's the broadest area of medical writing. Um, it is perhaps the easiest area to enter because Education is the focus, that the content will vary depending on the client. Uh, it's more important to have a sense of audience, to have a sense of learning uh, theory, you know, what, what do adult learners need and so forth, and how do you tailor your, your program for that. Uh, the third area of medical writing is scientific publications, which is my particular field. Uh, and then the, there's a fourth area, which I include, although it employs really very few medical writers, but that's patient education. Uh, the nurses typically have been involved in that because they have the patient contact and they have the content knowledge, uh, but they're not professional writers or editors. 
Uh, within the field, there are both medical writers and medical editors. Uh, the range of topics is wide. Uh, the range of content knowledge one needs for those things is, is also wide. How you get into the field depends on where you enter the field. There is no single way to become a medical writer editor. When I started in the late 80s with, with AMWA, about half of the members had backgrounds in the sciences, life sciences, medicine, biology, so forth. And the other half had backgrounds in humanities and fine arts. Uh, English certainly was represented as was social science and communications and so forth. And that was a nice mix because the, the English folks taught the scientists how to write and the scientists taught the English folks about uh, biology and medicine and drug development and so forth. Over the years, that's changed. I suspect that about you know, maybe two thirds to, to three quarters of AMWA members are now regulatory writers, uh, typically with PhDs and hired for their content knowledge. And the problem is that, uh, at least from my perspective, is they don't think of themselves so much as medical writers, as scientists who write. Can't build a profession when most of the people in the association really don't define themselves as medical writers or editors. It's something they do, but they're, they're trained as scientists and that's certainly okay. It's just a different perspective. Um, I think that answered the first of your questions. I've forgotten the second one. Yeah, well, it's more the subspecialty. I mean, you do medical writing, um, like, I mean, are, is, there, is, there, is there something within medicine that you focus on or goodness, I mean, medicine is such a large topic. Yeah. Certainly in scientific publications, no. Um, I edit topics in all fields um, <clears throat> at all levels of that, you know, meaning people who routinely publish in the New England Journal of Medicine to a lot of non-native English speakers who are writing their first or second article and so forth is the range. It, within pharma, regulatory writing, many writers tend to develop uh, a specialized knowledge in the therapeutic area. And so to some extent, if that's a specialty, then that's, that's a specialty. Now, a good friend of mine was the uh, director of medical publications at Texas Heart Institute for many years. Uh, and Texas Heart did um, just that, cardiology and cardiac surgery. And she used to work with uh, Denton Cooley and his successor, uh, Bud Frazier, I believe. Um, now, she specialized in cardiology and cardio cardiac surgery because that was the limited nature of, the, of that uh, institute. And there are a couple of other examples of that where the job happened to require an expertise in a certain specialty. Um, but I think that that's the exception rather than the rule. And that most writer editors, um, even though they may specialize in some aspect, let's say of continuing medical education, some some um, specialize in doing needs assessment and then prepare, writing a proposal to a pharma company about how to, um, what their needs were for training and then they would design the training and so forth. Uh, Marielle is in that area. She can certainly tell you more than I can. Um, in my work in scientific publications, I have specialized not in a content area uh, per se, but in an area called critical appraisal. Um, I know a lot about statistics. I'm not a statistician, I speak the language. Uh, but I have um, 
train myself in through a variety of ways to where I can basically function as a peer reviewer, but without the content knowledge of the medicine. So I look at the research, how well is it reported? Do the statistics make sense? Um, are the data reported correctly? Are they um, consistent with the text and so forth? Some people specialize in patient education. The potential of patient education is great. Uh, if you see patient education as, as a brochure that you, you make for somebody with back pain, that's sort of one thing. If you see patient education as an extension of patient care, now it's a completely different ballgame because now you're trying to persuade patients to follow the instructions and you're trying to inform them and the significant others around them. Um, a lot of patient education is not written for the patient, it's written for the caregiver. So it could be a much more specialized field than it is, but uh, for the most part, it's still pretty, pretty generic. Marielle, to, to, to simplify things, because I, you know me, I just like simplicity. Um, how, does it, how does a project come to light? You get a phone call from who, what information do they give you? What do they tell you? When, how soon they want it? Like, just take us through just an example of, you know, without delving into the confidential details. I'm just trying to understand how a project comes to light and how soon it takes. And I want to give listeners an example of something a medical writer gets involved in. And then Within that, if you please just highlight the aspect of the target audience, because Tom intrigued me by saying, depending if you're talking about back pain, if you're talking about this just to educate versus as part of continuity of care and, and, and part of the care plan, that was, that was pretty interesting. So can you take a listener just through an example of a project? Who picks up the phone? Who calls you? Who emails you? What information do you get? What resources do you use? How long does it take And uh, for, for, for an example? Sure, I'll give you an example I worked on last month. The FDA just approved a new drug uh, for a new indication. The drug was, it was a new indication, not a new drug. And the actual pharm pharma company wanted to update all of their training for their internal teams um, on that particular, those particular clinical trials that came about before the approval. So that, that this is under a module training. This is you're creating new modules or you're updating a new module um, related to that, those, that specific FDA approval and related to how it would affect the competitors, how it would affect the market with other competitors of that same, uh, of that product. So um, the call is from either the pharma company or a support agency, a medical communication agency that works to support that pharma company that wants to, to recruit uh, or work with a contractor medical writer to work on this particular project. You are, giving, you are given instructions. Um, sometimes you're given the, the references that you need to work on, uh, the updated prescription information, all the press releases. Some, some other times you are required to do that primary research to look at all the, the latest press releases, the latest publication that provided the support for that, um, for that FDA approval. 
and to build a document or to update the previous uh, training module that will you know, be then designed and given to internal teams. Uh, those are I'm talking about MSL teams, medical science liaison teams. Um, so this is an example of a project. You're contacted through an agency, through another medical writer colleague, through a recruitment agency. All these are avenue, potential avenues, or at least when you're starting or for, for, for a new so, Maria. Marielle is like how like I would think for example a company a manufacturer that's large enough they have medical writer I mean you know I, I can you know like I don't know whatever like the Pfizer's of the world the Merck's of the world the BMS of the world I mean don't they have this as an internal resource I'm curious why do you why do you think they go outside like and I get and we get we get this question all the time <laughs> but believe it or not they don't they don't. It's strange. Uh, because they are agency, they are a complete agent, like a complete industry uh, built around that to fill that need, to fill that demand. Uh, yeah, and it, it's it's a very it's a growing demand, it's a growing industry. So yeah. But this and question then, always comes. Yeah, and then how long does it take you to do this? Like, do they tell you would like this within two months? Like, do they, I mean, do they give you an actual? I mean, I'm presume there's some deadline. There are deadlines there. Every project is capped at a number of hours. So what I described right now is, you know, a 40 hours effort, but then there are several reviews that happen after that first draft. So several back and forth with a medical reviewer, with a legal reviewer, with the, with the client teams, internal teams. So there are several rounds, say five or six revisions back and forth, minor revisions. There are fact checkers who fact every, uh, where every information came from in the original primary research article, uh, primary literature. And, you know, if, if something doesn't make exact, you're not, they come back to you and ask you, where does this come from? So you're basically annotating every sentence needs to be referred back to the primary literature. Um, and this is just one example of, I just gave you one project example that I recently worked on. So... Interesting. Yeah. So, Tom, how do you keep up with the uh, growing body of literature out there? I mean, I can barely keep up with oncology and hematology. Um, so I presume, you know, when, when you get called um, to do a project, if it is, again, you have to spend so much time probably researching it and even getting familiar that's why I always say it's much easier to be subspecialized, honestly, if you focus on small area. Once it's so broad, so how do you keep up? Like, are there conferences that the American Medical Writers Association hold to continue, continue education of the writers? And, and what is that looks like? In other words, how much of it is the science versus the style, learn how to write, learn how it's easier to communicate, uh, know your target audience uh, so that you can capture them and draw your attention, their attention. Well, first of all, I think it's important to distinguish that <clears throat> the content that I know and, and pursue are not medical topics, they're communication topics. Um, I, I gave one of my favorite authors a heart attack one day. He's a pediatric uh, cardiologist, and I've worked with him for decades. Uh, and he was, he sent me a paper and he said, you know, this is along the lines of the last two papers that you did on this topic. And I, I said, Steve, I don't read your papers. I edit them. <laughs> and, 
Oh boy. And, and that is really true. Um, the, you know, at, at the level of editing that I do, high-end editing, a lot of it is conceptual. And it's the ability to look at the research, it's the ability to infer what the author probably wanted to say but couldn't say. Um, it does not have to be content driven. Uh, the author is responsible for the content. And I work under the author, directly with the author, to prepare that, um, that manuscript uh, for submittal to the journal. Now, there's another bunch of editors, the manuscript editors, who work at journals and publishing houses who edit documents after peer review, which means that they don't have a whole lot of time to make changes and they don't have a lot of freedom to make changes because of the... Um, uh, it's been past peer review. And even if they find something major, it's not going to be acted on. Now, for my own professional development, I do uh, many things. I've um, taught on the uh, University of Chicago's medical writing and editing program since its inception in 1999. Uh, I've taught several courses uh, over the years, but primarily statistical reporting. Um, I also consult with other uh, programs who are developing uh, programs in writing and editing. There are, I think, three others. Uh, I think it's interesting to note that uh, of the four programs I'm aware of, none of them begin began with uh, a course on tables and figures, because medical writing is writing, right? Well, it's more than writing. Um, it's Sometimes it's graphic design, but it's certainly tables and figures and illustrations and medical images. These are all part of the content. Um, early on, I became involved with the evidence-based medicine movement, uh, beginning with, with CONSORT, uh, which I'm still involved with, and then <clears throat> several other initiatives, the Moose Initiative, the Quorum Prisma Initiative, uh, and that sort of thing. So if, if learning is a change in knowledge or skill as a result of study, instruction, or inexperience, um, I try to do all those things. Uh, I do a lot of study on my own, a lot of publishing, which helps me learn the content. And when I publish it uh, to the various uh, editing organizations, um, the American Medical Writers Association, European Medical Writers Association, European Association of Science Editors, Council of Science Editors, uh, that's my way of educating uh, the rest of the field uh, in terms of concepts that they aren't really exposed to, like research into written communication, what works uh, to communicate better and what, you know, what interferes with comprehension and so forth. Again, a lot of that has been in um, statistical reporting, uh, which I got into by accident. I needed to know how to report statistics and there weren't any guidelines and the long and the short of it is I did a, a comprehensive review of the literature on statistical and methodological errors, uh, turned those into a set of guidelines uh, in, in the book, How to Report Statistics in Medicine. And again, I've been trying to disseminate that information worldwide uh, in my training. So that's my particular part of professional education. Now, in regulatory writing, I think to some extent in, in Marielle's um, area at MedCom, the folks are hired for their content knowledge. And they're going to upgrade their knowledge just as you would with, with extensive reading. Uh, they're going to get a lot of experience in the therapeutic areas where they work. You know, it's not easy, but they've got a PhD to begin with or, or an MD. They've, they've got a good background. They can understand the literature and they, that's what they write about is the literature. And so there it's, a, it's more of the, the same issues that you would 
encounter in your own uh, personal development. Yeah, that's helpful. So Maria, like what conferences do you go to in a given year? So it really depends. It's not, for now, I've been getting a lot of requests in hematology, oncology, and rare diseases. I haven't gone for to, to, to big conferences, but I've covered a lot of small roundtables and expert meetings from disease associations who are meeting with stakeholders across the insurance, across payers, and pharmacy directors who are trying to, you know, explain some new contracting or, for example, the, what the OCM is, what can, what can pharmacies do to impact quality, to reduce costs, things like that, or roundtables about new gu guidelines that advance the field. Um, and these meetings, you know, want to, these, the proceedings want to be turned into white papers or manuscript. But, uh, I mean, since COVID has changed the game a little bit, um, but the, the very latest is, you know, our large workshops at the NIH uh, that I'm working on right now, like full day workshops that are that will be turned into executive summaries and then later into manuscripts. So these covers cover really latest research and latest technologies. And I mean, an example right now is lung repair, mechanisms of lung repair and disease and disease injury and homeostasis. So covering research across America and Europe from gene editing to CRISPR technologies to you know different research avenues that are being explored to better understand the cell at a molecular and cellular level. Some other times it might be, you know, advisory board about chronic lymphocytic leukemia the next week. So it is it was a challenge in the beginning to you know to uh, shift gears and it's and this challenge is shared by many writers, but. It gets repetitive, so it, it get you know the topics get repetitive or very close. So you you develop a mechanism of uh, and, and uh, to, to what Tom said, as pharmacists or doctors or PhD, you you, you have this knowledge, so you, you're building up on a knowledge that already exists with, with reading. Uh, it seems it seems there are two major categories. Again, to, back to simplicity. One is Metcom, like uh, Tom said. The Metcom is, you know, is a lot of what you're doing, Mariel, Right? I mean, it's like you know, sometimes executive summaries to educate about something. Um, uh, could be CLL, could be new drug, uh, could be direct. It could be internal too. I mean, these not not everything is becomes public. Sometimes these reports are simply right. internal to the company or competitive analysis, you know, for different drugs and perspective. Right. Like looking at uh, the market uh, predictions and things like that in drugs. So an aspect of it is internal and another aspect is public. Um, but, but it does fit under the METCOM. You're communicating either internally within a client, uh, internal ecosystem or externally to their uh, stakeholders under the communication aspect. Because what Tom alluded to is the training component, which is the critical appraisal and the editorial aspect, which is a little bit different than METCOM, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. I want well, to we, do use, 
we, we do use our content knowledge, like Tom described it uh, very well. This is more on the content side. You have to understand the science to be able to write about it. But the other aspect is what Tom works on. It's like the, the mechanics of, of writing and editing, uh, of understanding the statistics and reporting it and interpreting it. So, so these two um, skills complement themselves for to do medical writing. So yeah. Tom, a lot of the criticism, not criticism, a lot of the pushback that sometimes I see on social media or I hear about is when a manuscript is published in the peer-reviewed literature and in the acknowledgement piece of the manuscript, it said that this medical writing support or grant was provided by the sponsor of that particular study that got published. Uh, pretty much there is a subset of the physicians or the investigators that roll their eyes up and they say, well, uh, you know, the authors did not write this. So it must be completely biased towards the sponsor. And I'm not going to really, why can't the authors write their own papers? You've got 20 uh, physicians on that paper in the NEJM and they could write the paper. And uh, they start dismissing the output of that paper or maybe not taking it seriously and so on. So what, tell us how do you respond to that? Is it a fair criticism, not a fair criticism? I'd like to hear from both of you about this because that's really, honestly, that's really part of the reason why I wanted to tape this because I see that all the time. And I feel sometimes medical writing does not get its fair shot of responding to this criticism. Um, it happens, um, but nobody's really sure how often. <clears throat> I tend to think that it's not as uh, common as people think. Um, <clears throat> Muriel and I, uh, independently, we can write the first draft of an article faster, better, and cheaper than the author can. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you're looking at a, an anesthesiologist who's charging 5,000 an hour, 10,000 an hour, whatever, uh, and so every hour that anesthesiologist is in the operating theater is one hour they can't write or edit. So we work under the direct supervision of the authors. Now, it always, it's always of interest to me that when people say, oh, this, this article was ghostwritten, um, why they don't direct their anger toward the named authors, because authors have the responsibility. They sign uh, a form to the journal saying, I am an author on this. I participated in the research. I participated in the writing of the article. Um, I signed a form saying I am an author. I know who the other authors were. I know what their parts were. I have confidence in them and so forth. So the fact that an article has, you know, acknowledges um, support editing or writing support is there almost for, for no particular reason other than transparency. Now, if there's a problem with the research, nobody's going to call me as the editor, even though I'm, I'm listed on the paper, because I can't speak to what happened in the research. I can tell you um, that I got a draft, and here's what I received, and here's what I returned, but that's about it. Um, it's the authors who bear the responsibility on the whole ghostwriting thing. Now, there are authors who will uh, accept uh, gift authorship. They will put their name on a paper they, they haven't written. Uh, that's unethical. Uh, it's unethical for a medical writer to write an article uh, and not be listed as an author if they've done the literature review, if they've, if they've made decisions that um, substantively affect 
uh, the quality of that article and the research. So I think that the, the key here is that when a, a medical writer editor works under the direct supervision of an author, that is a very ethical and cost-effective way to produce a better document. There's absolutely no doubt about that. If that bond between the writer-editor and the, the author is broken, uh, as sometimes happens, uh, that is unethical on both parts. Uh, the writer-editor should not participate, and of course the author has no business uh, putting his or her name to something that they may agree with, they've certainly read the draft, but they really didn't have any part in the decision-making of the research or the, uh, the presentation in terms of the, uh, the literature review and so forth. Marielle? Thoughts on the same topic? Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for, for bringing that up and asking this question. I think it's important. And I've also seen and read, uh, you know, like comments or statements that seem to imply that uh, medical writer contribute to spin and hype, which was, uh, you know, a little distressful, a little disappointing <laughs> because medical writers, first of all, are co colleagues and I see them as colleagues to, to authors and professional writers. So um, uh, the or the, this, this statement is really not backed by evidence, first of all. Um, and then to what Tom said, medical writer, they really don't have the power or to spin, to, you know, to write spin or to hype results. They work in very, very close coordination with the author. The, the outlines of any manuscript are discussed in detail prior to the development and during, and they are revised, detailed by both parties. Uh, the discussion points uh, are discussed very well by both parties before the medical writers, you know, even start to write. Uh, and the only instances where there might be, uh, you know, uh, the quality might be compromised, again, to what Tom said, is when this relationship is broken or when the writer cannot really communicate well uh, or there's a lack of engagement. Yes, with the uh, where, uh, and I have experienced, uh, you know, something like that in my work and uh, yeah i can attest to, to it affecting affecting the product but uh, yeah i mean I, I feel like it's a missed opportunity saying that the writers are are contributing to spin and hype or sounding like we're journalists with nice words out there it misses the opportunity for us to work together you know to contribute to good science and to advance science and so the you, service of, you, mentioned, you mentioned the relationship between the writers and the authors. Where does the sponsor? Or the faculty, or right, oh, right. But yeah. where does the where does the sponsor? Because it, the authors are not the one who pay you to for your time and that you're spending helping in writing and editing. It's really the sponsor who comes in and and pays for the time and the effort. And they obviously you communicate with the authors and you discuss with the authors and all of that stuff. But where does the sponsor fit in in the equation? How much involved are they in the way uh, you write, in the way you communicate, in the type the data is interpreted? You mentioned authors and writers. Help me understand the link and how the sponsor is interjecting with that. I start with Marielle and then I'll ask Tom the same question. Mm -hmm. So I would, I mean, so there's, a, okay, you have to understand that there's several layers of uh, 
of either contracting or subcontracting before before the sponsor. So sometimes the writer doesn't even know, doesn't even get in contact with the original sponsor. They're just working with an agency or a clinical research organization or a publication uh, uh, company or so, and, and taking direction from these. And then that house or that that agency is 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 working with the sponsor to finalize everything. So um, so you might be working with I mean, different, different, like either scientists or it could be the main author or not the main author, but so the scientists who did the research or who has provided the, so, so, so there are instances where, where, where you, the writer does not have a direct contact with the sponsor themselves, but, 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 you know, they have all the instruction that they need and they do have a contact to ask questions or to, to discuss uh, to discuss these matters but yeah you might not be as a writer as an independent writer with the actual sponsor so the, in the, the final sign-off is not it's important to, to know that the final sign-off or the final okay is not the writer so to, to tom's point it's the author who's who's giving a final okay or the sponsor who's giving the final okay on that paper. So, so that, that statement or that um, su suggestion that the writer is with beautiful word embellishing the results, we don't have that power. I don't think we have that power to, to do that. So that, that's, a, that's a main point. T Tom, um, the same question. Uh, I, I got a good understanding into that relationship between the writers and the authors and how there's a back and forth and, and all of that stuff. And obviously the authors need to sign off. And uh, I understood that. I, I want to clarify a little bit the sponsor's role in that triangle, I guess, so we could complete it. Well, many pharmaceutical companies have a regulatory writing department, but they also have a scientific publication department, in which case the, <clears throat> the company is generating its own articles from its own authors with its own writers and editors. Most of my work in scientific publications is paid for uh, either by the author directly, um, or for example, when I was at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, you know, I was on salary and I would edit for, for the clinic, in which case, uh, many departments had uh, an internal review process and so forth. Um, I have been contacted by MedCom agencies to, um, to write articles. And by that, I mean to take a poster presentation and to rough a, uh, create a rough draft of an article that could follow from that. Um, it has not happened very often. And the two that I'm thinking of, I actually worked a little bit and then withdrew from the contract because there were errors in the research or the statistics that I was not willing to uh, write about. You know, they were, they were essential. I think it was the result of ignorance, not intentional fraud, uh, but they wouldn't fix it. And so that was the problem. And I think that, that Marielle is in the area where this happens most often as uh, uh, the contract uh, medical communications companies. I mean, that's where this, this stuff happens. Um, I'm not writing to go writing articles for people at the Cleveland Clinic. It just they don't need to. They've got their own their own thing. So um, she's probably much um, much more on top of this issue than I am because that's where it happens. I will say that 
we, we have researchers, right? And we don't expect them to do their own literature searches. We give them librarians. We don't expect them to do their own illustrations. We give them illustrators. We don't expect them to do their own statistics. We give them statisticians, but we, we do expect them to do their own writing. And that's a mistake because it takes time and they can't do it and I can do it better and cheaper. And one more caught here. We're all taught in school that you have to do your own writing because writing in school is the way in which we learn how to, to think. And so the writing that we turn in has to be our writing. Once you get out of school, I mean, nobody's ever asked me to write an essay since yeah. I graduated from college, right? Um, and so especially in medical technical writing, the norm is that the, the, the PI doesn't do a lot of this stuff because we can do it better, faster, and cheaper. You know, I like, um, it's actually interesting when you talk about statisticians, we give them statisticians, we um, graphic designers and so on. Uh, yeah, you're right. There, the expectations about medical writing are a little bit different. Um, Marielle, the, like, are there scenarios where, um, you know, you're, you're writing and helping the authors uh, in writing a paper and the sponsor says, well, we don't like the way this is stated. It's, it doesn't really help our cause. You need to change it or not change it. I mean, I, uh, Tom alluded to a scenario where he said, no, I'm not doing this. This is just not the way it is. I don't really see how this is really supported by what you're showing me. Um, are there situations where there's this like, you know, disagreement between writer, author, sponsor, and uh, of interpreting or writing or how to convey the message? Yes, they are. Not in the exact scenario that you described for me, at least. Um, so yeah, I had to cover uh, um, an event for an NGO, uh, health NGO and uh, and I did not agree with the with the with the way the results were being interpreted or the story was being inter told, and it didn't end well. It didn't end well. Um, no matter what I did with the report, there was some some uh, some miscommunication between like like differing opinions between the people that I was working with. One wanted to write it as a you know as a journalistic piece, and the other wanted to write it as a scientific report. So and they couldn't agree. <laughs> what they wanted but I was writing a scientific report that was what but I was hired to do but but still within it there was some uh, you know things that were on the side of policy more than science and I was not uh, I was not told that I just you know sometimes you're you're exposed to it at the end of it when you're writing it through it so it happens I think it happens a lot but with experience you start knowing you start knowing how to say no to the client before you even take or accept a, accept a project. You, you can read better who your client is and, and, and have better knowledge, better sense of who you're working with and say no at the outset. But this was when I had started. Uh, this is not exactly the scenario that you described, author and sponsor in the pharma and publications, scientific publications. But uh, there are so many different scenarios in medical writing, so many different asks um, of things that you work on yeah so it's not it's not always straight from sponsor right. to agency to writer right. um, there's a lot of in between you know sometimes the researchers are actually writing the their own paper but they need help from a writer and it could be extremely high quality and so 
Yeah. Um, Tom, in the in the five ten minutes left, I want to. Um, I want. I like. What do you want for somebody who is listening to this show about medical writing? Um, I know Marielle is uh, engaged on social media. You've been doing this for decades. You have a wealth of experience as well, uh, Tom, in terms of what's going on. You you both understand the misconception, the challenges, the um, I don't know if I want to call it stigma because that's probably too much, but you know, certainly for some people, they stigmatize the the profession, um, you know, more than it deserves. So, if there is a listener who is curious about medical writing, what do you want them to really understand? Take as much time as you want because I want to make sure they hear you, they understand you, they know what it's about, so all of the questions are answered, and both of you hopefully can can convey that. That would be a nice ending to the to the episode. So, Tom, you go first. What do you want listeners to know about medical writing? Medical writers and editors are the link between those who create information and those who use it. I do not care about the author's voice. I don't necessarily care about whether the author wants this wording or that wording. He, can, he or she can change it. I serve the readers. My job is to take the information that I get from the, the authors and to, without distorting the meaning certainly, but to clarifying it um, to, so that that document helps readers do one of four things. It helps them understand the information. It helps them find information quickly. Um, it helps them remember information and it helps them use that information. Those are the criteria by which you can evaluate my work. And I think that's what I would, would want them to know is that we serve authors, but our primary clients are the readers. And everybody benefits with that because we have a certain skill set that takes a long time to develop. Authors, I mean, many authors are good writers, um, but we're better, quite honestly, and we can do it faster, better, and cheaper, uh, and have a better chance of achieving the outcome of keeping the fidelity of that information high from the authors to the readers. Marielle, what do you want listeners to to get out of this? What do you want them to understand that you don't think they understand? I think uh, medical writers are partners of uh, scientists, physicians, researchers, uh, patients um, in, in advancing good science, in advancing safe science, safe research, um, and uh, disseminating knowledge easier and uh, better, uh, so that it's you know so, so that science serves its purpose to the larger audience. It's very hard to top what Tom said, <laughs> but I agree with everything he said. But I, yeah, I see us. I see writers with advanced degrees as partners uh, with the larger scientific community. Um, that can help with communication to uh, to to the larger to the larger society, yeah, and improve outcomes. Yeah, yeah, and I think the um, you know maybe the the last question I have, and then I'll let you go. I really appreciate the time you're spending. Um, is is uh, and I think you may alluded to it, but I I don't. My short term memory is not very good anymore. Do you write just, I know, Tom, you did, you've written a couple of books and, and all of that, but um, 
do you write short stuff like short essays, uh, uh, 1500, uh, 2000 words, articles, uh, uh, just because you're a medical writer? I mean, do you try to write to the lay press? Do, I mean, like, do, do you use that talent and that expertise just for yourself to, to, to write these, uh, um, you know, to communicate to the outside world, whatever you want to communicate? Do you do that, Tom? Most of my writing is uh, professional writing to the, the journals in my field. Um, now, I do do a fair amount of writing, actually rewriting with my clients. Um, if I've worked on a paper three times, it's gone back and forth. Um, I may rewrite parts of the sections. I will, uh, I mean, I will do things that are normally called writing, but I think rewriting is probably the better explanation. Um, do I... I write for magazines um, for the money. No, it's always for professional journals. Um, I mean, I write in other areas of interests. Sure. Uh, I have an interest in, in say martial arts, for example. So I've written a lot in that area, but that's really not related to, to what I yeah. do as a writer editor. Yeah. Uh, okay. My last question, Marielle, this is a weird question, but I have to ask it. Uh, you don't have to tell me all the details, but medical writers, do they, make money is it per hour per the number of words per the number of days like i mean is it is it an hourly type of an occupation this job is a 40 hours i charge x number of dollars per hour this is how much i'm going to make or is it it varies so i'm going to write a paper and the paper is 5000 words and this is how much i charge per word is that a naive question no not at all <laughs> It's, it's for all of the things you mentioned, depending on the project, on the client. Uh, it could be an hourly project, you're paid per hour. The client will tell you this project is capped at 50 hours. I pay you X dollars per hour. Another client will tell you I'm preparing a white paper after this meeting and I'm paying X thousands of dollars for this paper. Uh, for magazines and feature articles, it is per word. Um, so it's a little bit of all of these. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, look, I think I think for listeners who are interested to learn about medical writers, we may have not uncovered everything, but I would say we probably clarified over 80% <laughs> of uh, uh, medical writing. Is there anything I should have asked both of you? And I just simply did not just because I just don't know as much as you do about medical writing. Anything I should have asked you? Yes. There's a, a field within medical writing and editing called language polishing. Uh, language polishing emerged because uh, non-native English speakers need to publish in English language journals for promotion. And there are thousands of these companies. Um, their business model is primarily high volume, fast turnaround time, and low cost. There's no room for quality in there. Um, I saw a poster once. Um, this is you want it cheap, um, fast, and, um, and good, pick two and call me back. Um, so you have to know what you're getting. And uh, there are commercial editing um, and writing groups who do good work, but they better be expensive because that's the only way you get quality. And that the, the standard um, language polishing companies, uh, they don't guarantee an article will be published. All they do is guarantee that if it's rejected, it won't be because the English is substandard. 
Uh, the value added to a lot of that, I think, is negligible. I worked for a company for six months to see what it was like. The quality of the research was abysmal. Uh, it was unethical, in my opinion, to accept some of those jobs because they, it should not have been published uh, or done in the first place. So that's another area of the, allegedly in the profession, but it's certainly not in the professional aspect of the profession. Marielle, did I forget anything to ask that, uh, and thanks for that, Tom, that was very helpful. Anything I forgot to ask that you think I should have asked? No, I just want to say, I think it's a very uh, rewarding profession, very uh, uh, satisfying, uh, intellectually satisfying. Um, and I derive a lot of uh, uh, satisfaction and, and learning where you can um, diversify a skill set and improve and contribute to uh, to the larger uh, um, to the larger society, good. to the larger good. Well, Tom Lang and Marielle Ferris, thank you so much for spending time with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm really very grateful um, for your time, for your uh, clarification. And Marielle, this is a great T-shirt you have on. We need to get one for Tom. Exactly right. That's how it works. This is this is happening, Tom. We need to get you on. All right. Thank you so much for having us, Shadi. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I appreciate your support. I hope that you found that this episode was helpful and clarified a lot of the things that you did not know about medical writing. So at least you can make your own judgment when you see articles, papers that are written by medical writers. I personally have been really amazed by the level of knowledge, by the level, by the advanced degrees that medical writers have. And I certainly have learned a lot uh, from their style and the way they communicate and so on. So I hope you enjoyed it. I would like to hear from you. I'd like to get some feedback from you. And you could do that by sending me a direct message on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me an email to through my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Don't forget to uh, rate, review, and um, refer colleagues to this show and to check out the YouTube channel and to subscribe to it and rate it. I appreciate your support and your feedback. And you are a loyal listener. You get one of my Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirts. So just send me a message and I will do that. Before I let you go, I'm going to actually leave you with a, a, a saying, a quote from Stephen King. I actually do like this and what he said. If you don't have time to read, you don't have the time or the tools to write. Simple as that. Until next time, take care.